Our theme for this past week, hopefully you know it's our theme, was on the back of our t-shirts, was our theme verse was Jeremiah 29, verse 7. In that, that verse says, uh, to seek the welfare, the Lord says to the Israelites in, in exile in Babylon, to seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. God was saying to his people, I've sent you to a place for a time. It's temporary. You're in exile there. It's not your home, ultimately, but it's where I have you. And while you're there, I want you to seek the welfare of the people. I want you to seek the welfare of that city. I want you to be for that city. And I want you to be for that community, representing me while you're there, but for a time. The point of Serbicula has not been for us to serve for one week out of the summer. In reality, the point of it is for all of us to think hard about how we can serve him all summer long, and for that matter, all year long. And why? Because serving is not primarily something that we do. It's something of who we are. It's part of who we are. As those who have been sent into exile into this foreign land in which we live, this ultimately isn't our home. This ultimately isn't where our citizenship primarily is. We're representing a head of state that's not of this world. We're representing a foreign king, King Jesus. But he has us here. He has us here in this community, in this city for now. And while we're here, he wants us to be for this city. He wants us to be for this community. He wants us to be good neighbors as we represent King Jesus while he has us here. And so this morning, I want us to spend a bit more, bit more time as this is fresh on our mind. I want us to spend some time this morning thinking about how we are to be a good neighbor that represents King Jesus in this foreign land that we live in. So if you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to Luke chapter 10 in your Bibles. We're taking a bit of a time out from our study of Romans I'm actually going to be traveling the next couple of weeks, so we'll, we'll be out of Romans for a bit, but I promise you we'll be back in it. If you're new to New Branch, we're right in the middle of a study of Romans, but periodically we'll take some timeouts here and there to cover some things that we need to focus on. So this morning I want us to look at Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. This passage is where Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now even if you're brand new to the scriptures, you've probably heard of the story of the Good Samaritan. It, it's so infamous, it's proverbial even in our secular society. We all know what is meant by the Good Samaritan. I led a small devotion uh, about this from this passage this week, but this morning I want us to look at it a little bit closer because we see in this parable an example of serving those outside the walls of the church. But the irony of this story is that the serving that is done in this story is done by somebody who is not even in the church. And so there's a dual lesson for us here. Not only does this passage teach us about what it means to serve outside the walls of the church, but it also teaches us what it, is, what it doesn't look like. Because those in this story that represent the people of God give us an example of what not to do with respect to, to serving those in need in our community. So if you've got your Bible, let's read along in your copy of the Scriptures, Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25, and I'll read through verse 37. 
And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify him, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw the man, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege it's been this week to serve you. To worship you by serving those in need around us. God, we pray that you've been honored and glorified for that's ultimately what we hope to be, the intention of our heart, our motives, that we want your name to be made great in this community and around the world. We want the fame of your son, Jesus Christ, to be glorified in this community. And so, God, we ask that that is what what has happened. We pray that you've been glorified and honored by the service that we've offered up. But, Lord, we know it's, it's not about serving you one week a year. It's about having this as part of who we are, a posture of being used by you to meet the needs of the people that you place around us. So, Lord, we ask this morning that you would use your word to do whatever you have to do in our hearts and in our minds to move us to have that kind of posture 24-7. Not, Lord, not so that people will look at us and say, wow, that church has some neat people, but so that people will look at us and receive these shows of love and kindness. People will look at us and say, "They they must worship a great God. And so do that heart work in us this morning, Lord, so that ultimately you would receive greater glory from us. We pray this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. So the parable of the Good Samaritan in this passage is preceded by this encounter that Jesus has with a lawyer. And this lawyer here is not a secular lawyer. He's not a lawyer of civil law. He's a lawyer who is an expert in Hebrew law. So he's a religious 
leader. And he stands up and he asks Jesus a question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? But Jesus quickly exposes the lawyer's true motive, <clears throat> the intention of his heart. His purpose in asking this question was not because he was curious about what he must do to inherit eternal life. He wasn't asking this question because he wanted to know how to be more holy or he wanted to know how to love Jesus more faithfully or how to be a more faithful servant of God. No, his purpose here was to put Jesus to the test, as Luke tells us. His purpose was to trick Jesus, to trip him up in his words. He's thinking, I want to see if Jesus really knows the law. I know, I know the law. I'm an expert in the law. I'm a lawyer. I want to see if Jesus really knows his stuff. But regardless of his motive, regardless of the intention of his heart, his question is desperately important, isn't it? His question is desperately important. What must I do to inherit eternal life? We need to know the answer to this question because apart from Jesus, we don't have this. We don't, we don't have eternal life. You see, Scripture is, is clear because of our sin, because of our rebellion, because of our disobedience to God, we have already died the most important death, which is spiritual death. Though we live we are dead spiritually apart from Christ. Because of sin, we have lost what God originally intended for us to have, which is eternal life with him. And if we're honest, if we're all honest, we want it back. And we want to know what we must do in order to get it back. And that right there, folks, is the definition of man-centered religion. Doing. Man-doing in order to earn favor with God or in order to appease God's wrath against his own sin and rebellion against him so that we might have what we've lost, which is eternal life with God. That's what religion is. And this lawyer is an expert in religion. So this question of his is desperately important. What must we do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus answers this lawyer with a question of his own, the Socratic method of teaching, right? He answers a question with a question. He says in verse 26, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, we should note here that Jesus is not pointing this lawyer to the law because he's going to find eternal life in the law. No, he's pointing this lawyer to the law so the law will do what it was meant to do, which is to show this lawyer and us our sin, and to show us the sinfulness of our, our sin. And to show us how desperately we need God to rescue us from the penalty that we deserve because of our sin. That's why he's using the law here. So that this lawyer, through Jesus' use of the law, would see how far he has fallen short of the law's demand for perfection. So neither this lawyer nor any of us can gain eternal life, can gain forgiveness of our sins, can gain the righteousness that we need in order to be justified before our holy God. None of us can earn any of that through following the law. In our study of Romans, 
we ran across Romans chapter 3, verse 20, where Paul says unequivocally, For by works of the law, no man will be saved. No human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law is useful. It doesn't save, but it is useful. It's useful to show us our sin, to show us the sinfulness of our sin, and to show us our need for God to rescue us from our sin, because we can't rescue ourselves through the law. And, this, and, and the law shows us this. We also saw in Romans chapter 7, Paul say this, if it had not been for the law, I would, would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. And so the law is useful to show us our sin, to show us the, the vileness of our sin and how it separates us from God. And so it's useful to show us our need for God to rescue us from that hopeless predicament. And so this lawyer still, he, he, he is not trusting in Christ. He's not turning to Christ for rescue. And, and in fact, he is here putting himself still under the law. So he, he must fully obey the law, which is impossible. And so Jesus is gracious here, and he's kind to use the law to show this guy how far he has fallen short of the law's demands and how much in need of salvation he is, just like we all are, apart from Christ. So in response to this question of Jesus, the lawyer dutifully and rightly and probably self-righteously answers the question just as any good expert in Hebrew law would. In verse 27, he says, you sh the answer to the question is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, we've, we've heard that answer before, right? It reminds us of another situation later in Jesus's earthly ministry when Jesus answers the question of another lawyer, when this lawyer comes to Jesus and says, asks him, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers in that chapter, Matthew, as recorded in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second commandment. And Jesus says, all the law and prophets hang on those two commands. If you, want, if you want to have a summation of all of the law, not that all of the law isn't important, but if, but if you want to kind of summarize all of it, it's, it's summarized in those two commands. Love God with all of who you are and love your neighbor as yourself. And so the lawyer in this story gives the same answer that Jesus did in Matthew 22, which shows us that this is kind of a, a generic answer to this question, kind of like a catechism. What is the, what's the most important command? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus responds to his answer. You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So Jesus commends the lawyer for his head knowledge. He says, you've answered correctly here. But then he exhorts him to do it. He says, do this and you will live. Now, Jesus is not saying here that you can earn your way to heaven by loving God and loving your neighbor. But he's showing this guy the law because he, he knows how far this guy is falling short 
of the law's demands. This lawyer is not loving God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. If he was, he, wasn't be, he wouldn't be trying to trick Jesus. And he's not loving his neighbor as himself as Jesus is going to dis- display for him and expose in him by the telling of this parable in the ensuing verses. This lawyer, not being the picture of humility here, he thinks that he can justify himself. And so he responds to Jesus in verse 29, but he, desiring to justify him, says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, that's not a bad question. Who is my neighbor? Who is your neighbor? Is it the person sitting next to you? Is it the person who lives next to you in your neighborhood? Is it the person that's going to serve you lunch in an hour? Is is it the person that's going to sit next to me on the plane flight this afternoon? Who is your neighbor? Is it all of them? Who is our neighbor? Now, this lawyer was asking this question to try to justify himself. See, he's thinking if he can get Jesus to define his terms in such a way that makes him look good, and to define specifically this word neighbor, in in such a way that it describes a narrowly defined class of people, well, then maybe he's going to make the grade. Maybe he will be justified because he loves that narrowly defined class of people. And so he asks him, who is my neighbor? But Jesus doesn't answer the question the way this lawyer thinks he will. He answers it by telling this parable of the good Samaritan that we find in the next eight verses, beginning in verse 30. Verse 30, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, that road from Jerusalem to Jericho, it's only 17 miles. It's a very short road. But it goes from about 2,600 feet above sea level to 800 feet below sea level. It's a drop of some 3,400 feet, which is two stone mountains stacked on top of one another in the distance of just about 16 or 17 miles. So it's a very steep road, lots of rocky cliffs and switchbacks, very dangerous, perfect for an ambush. And that's exactly what happens to this guy who's traveling this road in Jesus' story. This man who's probably Jewish in his story, he gets ambushed by thieves. They strip him, they beat him, and they leave him half dead in the middle of the road. So right now in this story, the lawyer's thinking, well, that's my neighbor. He's a Jew, and he's in trouble. He needs me. I would stop and help that man. Surely he is my neighbor. But Jesus goes on in the story. He's setting up the lawyer here. Verse 31, Now by chance, as Jesus continues to tell the story, by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So the priest comes along, and the lawyer here in this story thinks, well, surely the priest is going to stop. This is a fellow Jew. It's one of his kinsmen. He's going to stop and help this guy and be neighborly to him, but he doesn't. He sees the man. He didn't do anything. He doesn't stop. He doesn't help. He just passes by on the other side. We don't know why. Maybe he was in a hurry. 
Maybe he had to perform a, re- a religious ceremony somewhere. somewhere. Maybe he had a, a sacrifice that he had to offer somewhere. And, and, and touching a dead body would make him unclean because Jesus said this guy was half dead. He may have looked dead to this priest, and, and that would have made him unclean. He, would, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't be qualified for his priestly responsibilities. Maybe he had on his, his priestly garments, his robes, and he didn't want to get them dirty. He didn't want to get them bloody. He didn't want to get them messed up. He didn't want to get his hands dirty. Maybe he was concerned about his own safety. It was a very real likelihood that the robbers who ambushed this guy, they, maybe they're still around and just waiting for someone to come and help this person so that they could ambush them as well. So perhaps he's just concerned for his own safety. But whatever the reason is, he doesn't stop and he doesn't help. He just passes by on the other side. Then in verse 32, so likewise a Levite, another religious leader, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side as well. It's interesting to note that in the original languages here, the grammar of the Greek in this passage, uh, the priest just kind of coincidentally happened to be passing by and just noticed the man and he passed on by. Whereas the Levite, in the original language, the grammar here insinuates that he actually approached the man. He saw him, and he, and he came to where he was. And so perhaps there was a little bit more concern on his part, or maybe he was just had this kind of morbid curiosity like rubberneckers on 285 when there's an accident, right? Oh, I wonder what's going on there. So maybe he didn't have any more concern. Maybe he just had morbid curiosity. But regardless, he passed on by as well. But then Jesus continues with the story and talks about this Samaritan. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where this man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, in order for us to truly understand the impact of what Jesus is saying in this story, we need to understand the history of the Samaritans. Samaria was the old capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by the Assyrian Empire before the southern kingdom of Judah was, where Jerusalem was. And so Samaria immediately began to be um, invaded by the Assyrians, and they came in there, they began to intermarry with the Jews, and they created this race of half-breeds. They were half-breed Jews. And they also accepted all of these, these pagan religious uh, beliefs of the Assyrians as well. And, and so the, the religion, uh, the Jewish religion of the, of the Samaritans uh, became diluted and impure, and so there, there became this animosity between the Palestinian Jews and the Samaritan Jews. They looked different. They listened. They, they sounded different. What was Jesus going to say about the Samaritan? When Jesus mentioned this word Samaritan, everybody who was listening to Jesus' story would have sat up straight and listened more intently. What is he going to say about this guy? They hated each other. Palestinian Jews and the Samaritans, they they didn't like one another at all. They considered themselves to be enemies. What was Jesus going to say about this Samaritan? 
The priest, who was a Jew, had passed by. The Levite, who was a Jew, who had, pa- had passed by. But what was Jesus going to say about this Samaritan? He says in verse 33 that as this guy journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Jesus is drawing a very stark contrast between the heart of the Levite and the priest and the heart of the Samaritan. All three journeyed down the same road. All three saw the same man lying half dead in the middle of the road. The priest and the Levite passed by doing nothing. And the Samaritan saw him and had compassion. It's the Greek word splognitsamai. If you're not new to New Branch, you know it's one of my favorite Greek words. It's just fun to say, splognitsamai. The word literally means to have a yearning in your bowels, to ache in your gut. In other words, when the Samaritan saw this man, saw the needs of this man, saw his condition, he ached in his gut for this man. He was literally moved with compassion. It's the same word that Jesus used when he talked about the father of the prodigal son. As he saw his son returning home from a long way off, it says that he was moved with compassion. It's the same word used of Jesus in Matthew chapter 9 when Matthew talks about how Jesus saw the crowds and he had compassion on them because they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He splagnizomite, he felt it in his gut, so much so that he had to do something about it. You see, the difference between the religious leaders in this parable and the Samaritan was the capacity of their hearts for mercy and compassion. The priest and the Levite had small hearts, They had very little capacity for compassion and mercy. But the Samaritan, this one who was different, this one who was an enemy, had a big old heart, had a large capacity, as we'll see, for compassion. So church, if we're going to be a church for the city, if we're going to be a church that's for this community, And if we're going to be a church that is a good neighbor that represents Jesus well while he has us here, then we need three things. The first that we see in this passage is that we need big hearts. We we, we need hearts that mirror the heart of our God. If we're going to be able to serve others in need around us with compassion. We need big hearts. We need hearts that have a large capacity for compassion and mercy. Hearts that mirror the heart of our God. So what is the heart of our God towards those who are in need? Because that's, that's what Jesus is saying. That's who our neighbor is. Those around us who are in need. Those around us who are in desperation. It may be physically, it may be spiritually, it may be emotionally, it may be relationally, whatever it is, those around us who are in need, they're our neighbor. And so what is God's heart towards the hurting? What is his heart towards those who are in need? I want to read just a few passages of Scripture to give us a glimpse into God's heart in this regard. Deuteronomy 15, verse 11 says this, there will always be poor people in the land. 
Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your brothers and toward the poor and needy in your land. God says, listen, they're always going to be poor among you. And your responsibility as my people among them is to be open-handed. To be open-handed among them. Deuteronomy 24, listen to this. God says, do not deprive the alien or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. He says, I, 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 want, I want you to focus on the alien. Who's the alien, by the way? It's the foreigner. It's the refugee. That's what the alien, I'm not talking about people from outer space. It's talking about people from other lands. I'm talking about refugees who find themselves among you. Do not deprive them. Do not deprive the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of a widow. And, and, and what, is, what does he tell them? He says, I want you to remember who you are. You were slaves in Egypt and I rescued you. Remember that it was my heart that met you in the middle of your need. And now as my people living among these folks, I want your heart to be towards those who are in need as well. Remember what I did to rescue you. Doesn't that have application to us with respect to the gospel? Remember who you were. I, ch I transformed you from a sinner into a saint. I changed you from an enemy of God into a child of God. Now I want your heart to be towards those who are hurting and hopeless and lost. That's the heart of God. He says, when you're harvesting in the field and you overlook a sheep, don't go back to get it. Leave it for the alien, that is the, the refugee, the fatherless and the widow, so the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your tree, don't go over them a second time. Leave them for those in need. When you harvest the grapes from your vineyard, don't go over them again. Leave what remains for the refugee, the fatherless, and the widow. God says in Isaiah chapter 58, Is not this the kind of fasting that I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to break every yoke. And in other words, God is saying to his people there, I'm not as interested in your religious ceremony as I am in you meeting the needs of the people who are hurting around you. That's why I've sent you there to do this. To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free. He goes on in verse 7 of Isaiah 58 to say, Is not the fasting that I desire from you to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer you. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I if you do away with the yoke of oppression with the pointing finger and the malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed. This is the heart of God towards the hurting around us. In Isaiah chapter 25, verse 4, Isaiah the prophet says of Yahweh, you have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy 
in his distress, a shelter from the storm, and a shade from the heat. In Jeremiah 22, verse 16, the Lord speaks of good King Josiah, and he says of Josiah this, he defended the cause of the poor and the needy, so all went well with him. Is that not what it means to know me, says the Lord God? So he commends King Josiah. He defended the cause of the poor and the needy. And then he concludes with this. Isn't that what it means to know me? In other words, the more you get to know me, the more that you will come in contact with my heart and the more that you will see that my heart is towards those who are hurting. Listen to what the psalmist says of the Lord in Psalm 68, verse 5. He's a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. In Psalm 146, verses 7 through 9, he upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the alien and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The book of Proverbs has much much to say about showing compassion to those who are in need. Proverbs 14, 31, he who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. He, he who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. But whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Proverbs 21, 13, if a man shuts his ear to the cry of the poor, he too will cry out and not be answered. Proverbs 28, 27, he who gives to the poor will lack nothing, but he who closes his eyes to them receives many curses. Jesus himself says in Luke chapter 14, that when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And then, of course, we have the often quoted words from James in James 1.27. Religion that our God, our, the God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Clearly, God has a heart for those on the margins of society. The poor, the hungry, the naked, the fatherless, the widow, the prisoner, the alien, the refugee, the foreigner. We cannot come away from this book with any other conclusion on that matter. God has a huge heart towards those who are hurting around us, and so should we. There are people in need all around us. The question is, do we have hearts big enough, hearts that have enough capacity for compassion, to do something about it? Do our hearts ache for their need, for their condition? Do we feel it in our gut? Church, to the degree that we do is the degree to which our hearts mirror the heart of our God. And to the degree that we don't ache in that manner is the degree to which our hearts don't mirror the heart and intention of our God. The more we get to know our God, the more we will see his heart and the more our hearts will mirror his. So if our ache, our gut doesn't ache with the plight of those who are hurting around us, it's either because we're not placing ourselves around the hurting enough to see that or we don't know the heart of God enough and we need to press into the heart of God more. 
because he cares about them. The key to having this kind of heart, a heart that splagnizomize, when we see hurting people around us, the key to that is the gospel. That's the key. If we want to see the compassion of, of our God, then we need to look no further than the cross. Because it's, it's in the cross that the love of God, the compassion of God is displayed for us. Our Lord Jesus was moved to compassion because of the hopeless condition of you and I, apart from the Father. And he willingly, because of that, he was moved to action. And he willingly carried that cross up to Calvary. And he willingly allowed himself to be nailed to that cross. And he willingly, though he could have called down a a legion of angels to bring him off of that cross and defeat those who put him there, he willingly gave up his life for for us. If, if If that's not compassion, I don't know what is. And if we have come to faith in Jesus Christ as our only hope, then we're in the process of being transformed into his likeness. And if we're being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ, then as we continue to grow in our faith, we will more and more, our hearts will more and more be transformed into the heart of our God. And we'll be moved with compassion towards the hurting around us. So the question I want to leave you, leave you with at this point is, how big is your heart? How large is your capacity for compassion for those who are hurting that God has placed us around in this community? But we're not talking here about just feeling sorry for the needy. I would imagine that on some level, both the priest and the Levite felt sorry for this guy. It was in the middle of the road. So this is not about feeling sorry for them. The difference between them and the Samaritan was that the Samaritan's compassionate heart propelled him to action it led him to go from a big heart to open hands and that's the second thing that we need if we're if we're going to be a church that's for this community if we're going to be a a church that is a good neighbor that represents jesus well while he has us here then not only do we need a a a big heart that's transformed by the gospel that splagnizomize and feels this this ache in our gut but we're going to be propelled to action. We're going to have open hands, just like the Samaritan. The Samaritan was moved in his heart, but it didn't end there. He was propelled to action. Look at his action in verses 34 and 35. It says that he went to him and bound up his wounds and pouring on oil and wine. Then he set, set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So big hearts with a big capacity for compassion will ultimately lead to open hands. In other words, we need to get our hands dirty like this Samaritan. What did he do? First of all, it says that he went to him. He went to him. He didn't just see him and pass by. He went to him. This required him to get off of his animal and, and, and leave a place of comfort, to get out of his comfort zone, to leave a place of safety and approach this man. 
He was, he was at the same risk of ambush that the priest and the Levite were. If those, guys, those robbers were still around, he was at the same risk. But he was willing to put himself at risk. He was willing to, to, to leave what he knew to be safe and to get out of that comfort zone. And to get his hands dirty. It says that he bandaged his wounds. Have you ever bandaged wounds like this? I mean, I've, I've put band-aids on scraped knees, but I don't think I've ever bandaged wounds like this. This... This guy was beaten to within an inch of his life, so much so that he was half dead. He couldn't move. He was lying motionless in the middle of the street. So this is a bloody, dirty mess. And this guy was willing to get his hands dirty and bloody and messy. Church, helping those on the margins of society is not neat and clean. It's dirty and messy and bloody. It's not about us just sending a check to a homeless shelter. It's about us rolling up our sleeves and wading into the messiness of hurting people around us who are in need and being the one to figuratively and perhaps even literally bandage their wounds. And that's not clean, neat ministry. That is dirty, messy, bloody ministry. But it's the kind of ministry that Jesus was involved in. Ever ever wonder why Jesus touched the people that he healed? Why did Jesus touch the leper when nobody else would? Why why did Jesus touch the young girl in Matthew 9 who had died, which, according to law, touching her would make him unclean? Why did he touch the eyes of the blind? Why did he touch the ears of the deaf? Why did he let the children come to him and sit on his lap? Why Why did he allow the woman who had been bleeding since birth touch him? Why did Jesus touch the people that he healed? It wasn't because he had to in order to heal them. He could have done that without touching them. He touched them because he wanted to. He was splagnizomide. He was compelled to. He had compassion on them, and it moved him to touch. He wasn't so concerned with his own cleanliness. He was willing to become unclean because he cared. Church, if we're afraid to touch those who are in need, it's usually because our heart is too small. So this guy was willing to get his hands dirty. He was also willing to share his time. The fact that he took time to bandage his wounds and take him to an inn. And it says that he paid the innkeeper the next day. And so he spent the night with him, taking care of him. Shows that this Samaritan was willing to share his time. And you know what? It takes time to help those in need. It takes time to touch those who are in need. And this involves us having enough margin in our lives to be able to be used by God to help those who are in need around us. This guy may have been, just, been in just as big a hurry as the priest and the Levite before him, but regardless of how big a hurry he had, regardless of what his agenda was, his priority was to help. His priority was to serve this person in need. And so when he, when he saw the need, he helped. And that's what God is asking of us, church. While he has us here in this foreign land, while we're in exile in this land of which we're no, no longer citizens, representing a king of a foreign land to which we truly belong, while he has us here, he says, I'm going to put people in need around you. I'm going to put people who are hurting around you. And I want you to meet those needs. He bandaged his wounds. 
And then it says that he poured on oil and wine. So not only did he have open hands with respect to his time, he had open hands with respect to his possessions. This oil and wine were prized possessions. They were, they were expensive possessions of his. And I guarantee you, when he bought them, he didn't have in mind that he was going to use them on a half-dead Jew in the middle of the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. He had another purpose in mind for them. He had another use in mind for these expensive possessions of his, but he used them to help this person. He was willing to share not just his time, but his possessions. He also shared his transportation with them. It says he put him on his own animal, probably a donkey, and took him to an inn. It'd be the equivalent today of picking up someone who's, who's homeless, who haven't, hasn't, had a, 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 hasn't bathed in, in days, and, and putting them in the, the, our car with leather interior. Right? That would be the equivalent today. And then he also shared his money with them. He gave the innkeeper two denarii. A denarii was a day's wage. For this, so this is two days' wage. Now, when we think back to what that meant in that day, it wasn't much. But whatever two days' wage for your household income is, just think about what that is. I did a search for the, the Decula zip code, and two days' wage is 450 bucks. So this is, in pocket, this is not pocket change here. But regardless of how much it was, he goes on to say that he promises to take care of whatever additional financial needs this guy incurs, and so he promises the innkeeper, whatever else you spend to take care of him, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of that. I'm going to pay that. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if we never give to the poor as a church or as individuals, what does that say about our heart towards those who are in need? We might say that we care, but if we never open our wallets to give, then we're just giving lip service to this biblical principle. The point here is that we, as the body of Christ, we need to be willing to roll up our sleeves and get out of our comfort zones and wade into the messiness and dirtiness of the hurting around us with a willingness to share our time and our possessions and our money in order to serve those in need. Now let me be very clear at this point. I don't want you to miss this. The greatest need of every poor person is to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The greatest need of every hungry person is to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The greatest need of every fatherless youth that we would serve is to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We know this is their greatest need, but they also have a presenting need, a very real presenting need that will prevent them from hearing the gospel from our lips if we turn a deaf eye and a blind ear, or blind eye and a deaf ear <laughs> to those presenting needs. You know, it's cliche, but it's true. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. It's not just cliche, it's biblical. James 2, verses 15 and 16 says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? It's a good rhetorical question. What good is that? None. 
It's not as though we need to earn the right to be heard in proclaiming the gospel. That's not the point here. We don't have to earn the right to be heard. We can proclaim the gospel whenever, wherever we are led to. However, if we're sharing the gospel with a guy who hasn't had a meal in three days, and we do nothing to feed that guy, then I would submit to you that not only is that probably evangelistically ineffective, it's also unloving. And it also probably does not represent the heart of our God very well. We need to meet the very real presenting needs with the ultimate hope, not the ulterior hope, but the ultimate hope of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with them. Because that must be our ultimate focus. And so that's the third thing that we need if we're going to be a church that's truly for this community, a church that's truly a good neighbor representing King Jesus in this foreign land in which we are exiles. We need to have big hearts that are transformed by the gospel. We need to have open hands that are, that are willing to show the love of Christ and display the gospel and how it's transformed our lives and hearts. But we also need to have what Paul calls beautiful feet. In Romans chapter 10, we're almost to this point in our study of Romans, but in Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 15, Paul says this. He says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. But how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And that word preaching means proclaiming and declaring and talking about. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach, proclaim, declare the good news. At the end of the day, good deeds without good words are just that. They're just good deeds. We're not saved by our good deeds, and those whom we serve are not saved by our good deeds either. Nobody will ever get saved because we give them food in the name of Jesus Christ. Nobody will ever get saved simply because you clothe them or help them in the name of Christ. The gospel must be proclaimed, not just from the pulpit, but from our mouths to their ears. It is a message that must be proclaimed and communicated, and it's a message that must be heard. So our serving outside the church must have a gospel focus. We need to look at all of our serving opportunities as bridge building opportunities, where we get to build a bridge to those who are hurting, to those who are in need, to demonstrate that we really care and show the love of Christ and display the gospel and how it's transformed our lives for sure through our actions. But if we really truly care about the lost, if we truly love those who are hurting and in need, then we're also going to declare the gospel. We are going to share the gospel with them because they are, apart from Christ, dying from a deadly disease, and we've got the cure. We've got the antidote. 
And how incredibly unloving of us if we don't share that with them. If we really care for them, then we will share the gospel. But if there's a presenting need that must be met in order for them to even hear the good news of the gospel, then if we really love them, we will seek to meet that presenting need so that they will see our love and so that they will listen to our message. And so we're called upon to both show the gospel and display the love of Christ as well as share the gospel and declare the love of Christ. Jesus concludes this parable by asking the lawyer a final question. In verse 36, he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, well, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. It's interesting that the lawyer begins this interchange here with a question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus ends with the exhortation to be a neighbor. The challenge that Jesus gives us in, in this passage is this. Will we just be religious or will we be a Christian neighbor that represents Jesus? What's the difference what we've seen in this passage is that the religious talk about religion. They talk about rules. They talk about what we must do to inherit eternal life. They seek to justify themselves that they have achieved some level of righteousness so that they are justified in themselves. And they seek to avoid those who are in need. Whereas Christian neighbors kind of neighbors that God is calling us to be, they don't talk about religion. They talk about Jesus. They talk about the gospel. They talk about how God loves us enough to send Jesus Christ to make a way for us to be reconciled to God. They talk about how we can be justified by faith in Jesus Christ as our only hope. And instead of trying to justify themselves, they try to empty themselves to live the cross life, to die to ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus and to live a life of emptying ourselves and putting others first. Instead of avoiding those in need because of what Jesus has done for us, we're called to serve those in need. The question for us as a church is which one will we be? Will we just be religious or will we be this kind of Christian neighbor. If you're here this morning, you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Perhaps you're just investigating the claims of Christ. What I don't want you to hear this morning is if, if, I, if I can just serve people who are hurting more, then I'm going to make myself right with God. That's not what, what Jesus is saying here. That's not what scripture says. The only way that we can be made right with God is through faith in Jesus Christ. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to rescue his children. And if we place our faith, our hope, our trust in Christ alone as our only hope to be rescued from what we truly deserve, then he saves us. He makes us a new person. And if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then that is the calling on your life this morning. Trust in Christ alone to be rescued. And when he rescues you by faith, in his son Jesus Christ, 
then press into the heart of God to seek to be the kind of neighbor that he's calling all of us to be. Church, let us hold up our heart and look in the mirror of Scripture. How do we measure up against the heart of God? Let us press into the gospel. Let us press into how God has transformed us by grace in the gospel. And out of that motivation, let us seek to represent King Jesus while he has us breathing oxygen in this foreign land. Let us be poured out on the altar of sacrifice, serving others as a means of worshiping Jesus. Let's pray.